Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you this morning. It's good to be together in this place on this day to worship God, to praise him and to allow him to speak to us through his word, the Bible, the word of God. So happy to see all of you this morning. And I want to invite you to go ahead and get your Bible out, please, whether digital form or paper form and turn to your Old Testament. I'm going to invite you this morning to go to 2 Samuel chapter 9 with me. Will you please go in your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 9 in your Old Testament? I'm going to be reading a lot of scriptures from that text this morning, 2 Samuel 9. As you turn to 2 Samuel 9, I want to ask you, what do you do when you've ascended to the top? What do you do when you have it all? What do you do when you've achieved Nearly all there is to achieve. You are the most powerful person in your country. You have conquered all of your enemies. You've acquired great wealth and built a big palace for yourself. You have a great name that is known all throughout the world. And you've even received a promise from God himself to build you an everlasting dynasty. What do you do when you've received all of these amazing and wonderful blessings in your life. Well, if you are David, if you're the king of Israel, if you are the man after God's own heart, you do at least three things. First, you give God the glory. You give God the praise and the credit for all the blessings you have in your life. And then secondly, you continue to serve God. You continue to worship God. You continue to trust God and do what God says in his word. And then thirdly, you do something, you do something really radical. You seek to help somebody. You seek to bless somebody. You seek as the king to be compassionate and generous and kind to somebody. That is exactly what we find David doing here in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Are you in 2 Samuel chapter 9? 2 Samuel 9, if you're there, you can see that it is one of the shorter chapters in the book of 2 Samuel. It is only made up of 13 verses, but those verses are extremely powerful. They are convicting. They actually reveal to us a side of David that maybe we don't talk about enough. If you remember last month, we looked at chapter 7, and in 2 Samuel 7, we learned from the life of David but there was a time when he wanted to build God a house. He wanted to build God a, a, a temple, but God told him no. God said, no, David, you're not going to build me a temple. You're not going to build me a house. Instead, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a ruling family. I'm going to build you an everlasting dynasty. I'm going to make sure that someone from your family is going to sit on your throne and establish it forever. That's the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 8, we find God continuing to bless David. We find God blessing David to conquer every enemy that comes before him. In chapter 8, he defeats the Philistines and the Moabites and the Syrians and the Edomites and a whole host of other nations. And then in this chapter, in 2 Samuel chapter 9, we see that after David experienced victories and rest from his enemies, this is what he wants to do. In 2 Samuel 9 and verse 1, then David said, Is there yet anyone left in the house of Saul 
that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? Notice that language. He wants to show the kindness of God. And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is in the house of Makur, the son of Ameliel and Lodabar. The king David sent and brought him from the house of Makur, the son of Ameliel, from Lodabar, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he said, here is your servant. I want you to notice carefully what's going on here in the text. Notice again, again, after finally being exalted to the throne of Israel. And after securing his power and conquering his enemies and acquiring great wealth and moving the ark to Jerusalem and even receiving a promise from God to build him an everlasting dynasty here in this text, David does something unexpected. He does something shocking and unprecedented. For him, for a man like him in his position, he does something that would have certainly caused the people and his cabinet or his or on his court to drop their mouths. Notice how David, as the king, actively, actively searches for someone to be kind to. He actively searches for someone to bless. And to help, in fact, the text specifically says that on this occasion, David actively seeks to be kind to somebody in the family of Saul. Question, why in the world would he want to do that? Why in the world would he want to seek out somebody to be kind, to be kind to in the family of Saul? Does he not remember who Saul was? Does he not remember all the terrible and awful things Saul tried to do to him in his life? Does he not remember the numerous occasions when Saul tried to unjustly take his life? Does he not know how things are supposed to go at this time? I mean, is David not aware of the standard operating procedure in the ancient world? Is he not aware of the fact that during these times in the ancient world, when a man became a king... And he is not of the family of the previous regime. Instead of seeking to help and bless people in that family, what the new king typically did was wipe them out. You wipe out the previous regime. You exterminate them. You do that because you view them as a threat. They may try at some point to reclaim the throne. You don't try to help the previous ruling family. Instead, you wipe them out. You exterminate them. That's what they did in the ancient world. And so what David is doing here, it is shocking. It is radical. It is very unexpected. But again, why is David doing this? Why in the world is he actively seeking to be kind to somebody in the family of the previous king, who wanted to kill him? Well, the answer is found in the text. 
It's found in verse number one. You see verse number one? Notice how the reason why David is actively seeking to be kind to someone in the family of Saul is because of a promise. It's because of a promise. It's because of a promise he made to his best friend, Jonathan, and also because of a promise he made to Saul. We can read about this promise in both 1 Samuel chapter 20 and in 1 Samuel chapter 24. You see, in both 1 Samuel 20 and in 1 Samuel 24, we find David promising both Saul and Jonathan that he would be kind to members of their family when he became the king. He actually promised Jonathan that he would take care of his family, and he also promised his enemy Saul that he would not wipe out his family. Here in 2 Samuel chapter 9, David is determined to keep his word. He is determined to keep his promise. He's determined to do exactly what he told them he was going to do. In fact, after talking to a servant of Saul's house, a man named Ziba, David becomes aware of a surviving member of Saul's family. Now, this surviving member is a man, and we were already introduced to him in the book of 2 Samuel. We're actually introduced to him in 2 Samuel chapter 4. This man is the grandson of Saul, and he is the son of David's best friend, Jonathan. His name is Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. Who is Mephibosheth? Well, notice how the text tells us that Mephibosheth is lame. He's lame. He's crippled. And both of his feet, how did he become crippled? Well, we learned that in 2 Samuel chapter 4. In 2 Samuel 4 and verse 4, when we were first introduced to Mephibosheth, we see that when he was five years old, his nurse dropped him. His nurse dropped him. She dropped him as they were fleeing after he received the news of the death of his father, Jonathan, in battle. He was crippled, dropped by his nurse at five years old, and that left him crippled for the rest of his life. He never would walk again. He would be in what was considered to be a shameful situation. In fact, his name, Mephibosheth, actually means shame. It means embarrassment. It means to be a person without honor. Mephibosheth is the crippled son of Jonathan, David's best friend. And notice he lives in Lodabar. You see that in verse number five? He lives in Lodabar. Where was Lodabar? Well, that name Lodabar means a place where there is no pasture. It means a place with no pasture. It was believed to have been located on the other side of the Jordan River, on the east side of the Jordan, and it was a wasteland. It was a garbage dump. It was a place of poverty and where people struggled. Question, why in the world is the son, the grandson of a king, the son of Jonathan, why is he living in a place like that? Why is he living in Lodabar? Why is he living in a wasteland? Why is he living in a, in a place where there's poor people all around him and they're outcasts and people who are at the bottom of the barrel in, in society? Well, can I suggest to you that the reason why Mephibosheth is living in Lodabar is probably because he's hiding. He's afraid. He is worried that David, the king, might kill him because he's related to his enemy. He's related to Saul. 
Mephibosheth is probably in Lodabar because he's hiding. And he's afraid. In fact, verse 6, when you look at verse 6, the scripture says that he is terrified when he comes before David in Jerusalem. You see that? Verse 6 says that when he comes before David, he falls down on his face. He prostrates himself. He says to David, here is your servant. This man is terrified. He's absolutely terrified. He believes he's about to die. He believes he knows exactly why David has called him all the way to Jerusalem and it's to execute him on the spot. But in what may be one of the most shocking moments in all the Old Testament. David doesn't do to Mephibosheth what he anticipates. He is scared out of his mind at this time. He thinks he's about to die. But in verse number seven of chapter nine, David said to him, do not fear. Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. Again, he prostrated himself and said, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? I'm nobody. Well, what am I doing to get this kind of treatment? What have I done to get this kind of treatment? And the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, all that belonged to Saul and all to his house, I've given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson shall eat at my table regularly. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord, the king has commanded his servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son. Notice he's a man at this time. He had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. He's not in Lodabar anymore. He lives in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. You got to really let these verses soak in your heart for just a moment. Notice how here David does the unexpected. He does the unexpected. Instead of hurting and executing Mephibosheth, the grandson of the previous king who hated him, David shows him. David shows him kindness. He shows Mephibosheth kindness. He offers him kind words. He calms him down. He relaxes him. He promises that he will give him everything that belonged to his grandfather, King Saul. And the blink of an eye, he takes this poor, lame forgotten man and he blesses him with prosperity he, he gives him great wealth he gives him land he gives him pasture he even gives him Saul's servant Ziba and Ziba's sons to be his servants and to help him cultivate all that land he has now because he can't do it he's crippled and so he's got land and he's got servants to cultivate that land for him he is also given a seat at the king's table. 
He's also able to be one of the few people in all of Israel who's able to actually eat with the king. He has a seat at the big table. I've told you on many occasions from this pulpit, on many occasions, that eating in the Bible, eating in the Bible is a big deal. Who you eat with in the Bible. That is a big deal. It's a big deal in the Old Testament. It's a big deal in the New Testament. It's a big deal throughout the scriptures because who you eat with in Bible times shows approval. It shows fellowship. It shows friendship. You see, by offering Mephibosheth a place at his table, David isn't just offering him an opportunity to eat the best food and have a seat of importance. No, in addition to those things, David is offering this man friendship. He's offering him a relationship. He's offering him a close relationship. In fact, in verse 11, the Bible says that from then on, Mephibosheth ate at the king's table as one of the king's sons. The idea there is Mephibosheth is being treated as a member of David's family. He is being adopted into the family. He's getting the same treatment as David's kids. He's getting the same treatment as Ammon and Tamar and Absalom and later Solomon because of a promise he made to his old friend Jonathan. David adopts one of Jonathan's sons as his own. He adopts him into his family. He takes him from a life of fear and poverty and ruin and he blesses him with the gift of kindness. He performs kind acts towards the grandson of his enemy. And this is a remarkable story. This is a remarkable story that is found in the Old Testament. In fact, I believe that there are a lot of important things that we can learn about David from this story. One lesson I think we learn about this man after God's own heart is he's a man who took vows seriously. Do you see that? He took vows seriously. He had made a promise to his best friend, Jonathan. He had made a promise even to his enemy, Saul, and he's determined to keep that promise. He is determined to keep his commitment. He is determined to do exactly what he said he was going to do. The question is, what about us? What about me? What, what about you? When it comes to the promises and the vows we make today, do we take those vows seriously? Do we honor our word? Do we keep our commitments and our promises? Do we do this when it comes to our marriage vows that we talked about last Sunday? Do we do this when it comes to the vows we make to each other as brothers and sisters and the vows we make to God? Do we do this when we vow to pray for one another? Whenever we're talking to someone and they tell us about a problem they're having in their lives and we say to them, hey, I'm going to pray for you. Do we really do that? Do we really do what we say we're going to do or are we just saying I will pray for you because it just sounds like the right thing to say in the moment. It just sounds like the quote unquote Christian thing to say. Do we keep our vow when it comes to that? And what about our creditors? What about Visa? And MasterCard and Discover, do we understand that whenever we sign that credit card receipt or whenever we sign that document for a student loan, we're making a promise? 
We're making a vow. We are vowing to Visa and MasterCard and Discover and that bank that we're going to pay back. We're going to pay this money back. David was a man who took vows seriously. And we need to take our vows just as seriously. But not only was he a man who took vows seriously, I think another thing we learned about him is he has a tender heart. Do you see that? He's got a tender heart. I mean, keep in mind, we're talking about a guy who killed a lot of people in his life. He killed a lot of people. This is the guy who killed Goliath. This is the guy who killed thousands and thousands of Philistines. This is the guy who conquered every enemy before him. And yet here we also see that he had within him the ability to be compassionate. He had within him the ability to be gracious and merciful. He had within him the willingness to be kind. He is a warrior, no doubt about that. But he's also a tender hearted warrior. In fact, his tender heart, his kindness was actually driven by gratitude. It was driven by gratitude towards God. God had been kind to David and David knew that and that compelled him to want to be kind to other people. God had blessed him with great blessings and that compelled him to want to extend blessings to other people. This is the kind of character and the kind of heart David possessed. But again, the question we got to think about is what about us? What about me and what about you? I mean, while there's certainly a lot to learn about David from this story, another question, our final question we got we to gotta address right now is, is in what ways does this story challenge us? I mean, it's not enough just to know the story and be touched by the story. We got to know how are we as Christians today? How are we challenged by a story like this? Well, I think this story challenges us in at least three ways very quickly. First, I believe this story challenges us to actively, actively look for ways to be kind. Actively look for ways to be kind. The Bible tells us in the, New, in the New Testament, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 32, as Christians, we are to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through his son Jesus has, has forgiven us. We're commanded to be kind in that passage. And then the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, kindness, Goodness, faithfulness, self-control against these things. There is there is no law. And then remember in chapter six and verse 10 in Galatians six and verse 10, Paul says that while we have opportunity, let us seek to do good, to be kind to all people, but especially those who are of the family of God. All throughout the gospel, we are given the commandment to be kind. To help people. To bless people, to try to alleviate the sufferings of other people. We are commanded throughout the New Testament to be like David. Remember, 2 Samuel chapter 9, David. David is actively searching for someone in the family of Saul to be kind to. He actively looks for, for Mephibosheth. It probably was very hard to locate him. But he actively searched for him. He actively sought for this lame, poor, and, and man who was an outcast to help as a follower of Jesus Christ. That, that's how I got to be. 
as a follower of somebody who demonstrated kindness towards me at the highest level when he gave his life on the cross for my sins, I also need to actively be looking for opportunities to be kind. I need to actively every single day be looking for opportunities to bless other people because I'm thankful for all the blessings God has extended towards me. I need to be like David. I need to be like David right now, right now. I need to be asking myself, who in this room, who in this place, who in this church can I help? Who can I bless? Who can I demonstrate some kindness to today? Who can I text a word of encouragement to today? Who can I email a word of encouragement to today? Who here is suffering? And I notice they're suffering and I can just pull them aside for a couple of minutes after church and say, can I pray with you today? Which new convert here am I willing to offer to study with? Because I'm noticing we got a lot of new converts in this church. Am I just waiting for the elders or the preacher to study with those people? Or will I be kind to those new converts and go to them and say, do you need somebody to study with you? Do you need somebody to help ground you in the faith? Which shepherd or deacon here am I willing to approach today and just say thank you? Thank you for what you do. Thank you for, for all you do in this church. God bless you. I really, really appreciate you. Which young mother here can I go up to today and say, may the Lord be with you. I see how you are wrestling with those children. You're wrestling with that child for two or three hours. That's hard. That's a hard thing to do. And you may be discouraged. You may feel like the microscope is always on you. You may feel like you're getting nothing out of this because you got to wrestle with kids for two or three hours. But I notice what you're doing and I'm inspired by your example. Keep it up. I will help you. You are doing something that's going to be long lasting and instill faith in your children. God bless you. Which young mother or young father can I say that to today? And who in this room? might be suffering with loneliness, especially this time of the year. And I can invite them into my home to spend time with me and my family. This story challenges us. It challenges us to actively look for ways to be kind. And it also challenges us to be kind and expect nothing in return. Be kind and expect nothing in return. In the case of David, if you notice the kindness he exhibited, it, it had no strings attached. There were no strings attached. There were no expectations. David didn't have a requirement for Mephibosheth to do something kind for him as well. I mean, what could Mephibosheth really do for David? David's the king. What can this poor crippled man do for him? David's not being kind to Mephibosheth. Because he wants something in return. He's being kind just because it's the right thing to do. And that's how we need to be. That's how we need to be as Christians. I want to go in my Bible to, to Luke, the 14th chapter, and show you what Jesus says about this. In Luke, the 14th chapter, if you don't believe me, at least believe Jesus. Because in Luke, the 14th chapter, in verse 12, in verse 12, after Jesus says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's verse 11. In verse 12, it says, in Luke 14, he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, 
Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. You see the principle there, the principle that Jesus is teaching there. Jesus says that there's really nothing special about being kind to other people with an expectation of receiving something in return. Jesus says that kindness is not to be treated as a weapon of power. It's not something we give to others and then we're supposed to always hang that over their heads. If I invite you into my house, I shouldn't be upset with you if you don't invite me into your house next month. I shouldn't expect gas money from you if I give you a ride to your doctor's appointment. I shouldn't expect you to buy me a holiday gift this year because I bought you one last year. We're not to be kind to other people because we want something in return or because we want credit or because we want glory or because we want people to owe us something down the line. Instead, as Christians, we are to be kind because it's just the right thing to do. Because it's the Christian thing to do. It's the Christ-like thing to do. That's what David does. David is kind and he doesn't expect anything in return. That challenges us. And then finally from this story we're challenged to see the kindness of God toward us. The kindness of God toward us. Remember, when Mephibosheth is called before King David, he, he really doesn't have a lot going on for him, does he? He's in a pitiful situation. He is crippled. He is poor. He's hiding. He's afraid. Most of his family is dead. He believes he's about to be executed on the spot. But to his surprise, what does he get? He doesn't get the wrath of the king. Instead, he gets the kindness of the king. He gets grace. He gets mercy. He gets an invitation to be the king's friend. Doesn't that remind you of something? Doesn't that remind you of me and you if we're Christians? Remember when we were lost in our sins? When we were dead in our transgressions? When we were without hope and destined to experience an existence of, in the horrors of hell? God, as the king of kings, offered us kindness. He offered us grace. He offered us forgiveness. He offered us the opportunity and the blessing to be his friends and sit at his spiritual table through his son, Jesus Christ. That is what God has offered us, his kindness. And the question is, how are we going to respond to that? How are we going to respond to the kindness of God? Like David, will we respond to the kindness of God by actively every single day looking for opportunities to be kind to other people? Will we seek to help other people? Will we seek to bless other people? Because we know we have been so blessed by God. This story challenges us as Christians to be kind because God has been so kind to us. And maybe you're here this morning 
Maybe you're here this morning, that's exactly what you need. Maybe you need to experience the kindness of God. Maybe you need to receive the forgiveness of God by responding to the gospel for the very first time through faith, repentance, and baptism for remission of sins. Or maybe you have received the kindness of God and you're a Christian, but you have been living in the right way. You can receive God's kindness again if you repent and come back to him. He will forgive you. And so we extend an invitation right now to anyone who needs to come to the great God who is kind and loving towards those who love him. If we can help you with that, come to the front. Let's stand. Let's sing together.